The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I'm delighted to welcome one of my favorite guests, Dr. Todd Cooperman. He is president, founder, and editor-in-chief of ConsumerLab.com. Dr. Cooperman is a nationally recognized and respected researcher, writer, and speaker on consumer healthcare issues. He received his MD in 1987 from the Boston University School of Medicine. He also received a bachelor's degree from Boston University with a major in medical sciences and a minor in economics. Recognizing the lack of quality standards and oversight in the U.S. dietary supplement industry, Dr. Cooperman founded ConsumerLab.com in 1999 And he basically led the organization to become the leading independent evaluator of dietary supplements and nutritional products. He has been called as an expert witness by committees of U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate to give testimony regarding the quality and regulation of dietary supplements. He has been regularly invited to speak about dietary supplement quality at the National Institutes of Health. He is a frequently cited expert in news articles and stories relating to supplements and health foods. Dr. Cooperman, it's a pleasure to have you back for our annual review. It's always great talking with you, Melinda, and thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I think that this area of self-medication almost is so important. As we become more disillusioned with our healthcare system, many of us recognize how broken it is, how expensive it is. And I think that is really driving so much of the population to seek alternatives and to self-medicate with a lot of these popular supplements. You know, a lot of the supplement stores have little areas where you can go and pick up books and learn about these products. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, what would you tell consumers about where to go to find credible research on dietary supplements? Well, of course, I have my bias. Uh, Right. That's what we do here at Consumer Lab all day long, every day for 20 years. But in addition to Consumer Lab, the Office of Dietary Supplements, which is part of the government, they have a very nice site, very good site with good, really good information. I know the person who edits that site, uh, a nutritionist and a you know, real expert, has been in the area many years. So that's a very good site. Yeah, I would say that that would be my number one pick, you know, in addition to, uh, to Consumer Lab. Yeah. Well, I often refer people to the National Institutes of Health, of course, U.S. Food and Drug Administration. But I think people are often looking for, they want to compare notes, and I encourage them to do so. I like your site, of course, but you do have to be a member to download the full reports. And you really take... We do have a lot of free information, I should interject, and we answer hundreds of questions from consumers. So that's a lot of free information there as well. But go ahead. No, I was going to say, I love those quick summaries that you have on site. I also love the videos that you have provided for consumers. I think those are really informative and these are free of charge. I think if you are a healthcare provider or if you're somebody who really wants to delve into 
the summaries of the research papers than it does pay to have a subscription to ConsumerLab.com. But as you say, there's lots of good free information on the site, and we will provide a link, www.ConsumerLab.com, to our listeners so that they have this as just one more excellent site to go to. Thanks. And I, I think what really distinguishes us is that we're testing products and rating them and, and evaluating them and telling people what we found, which you won't get from the government site. You'll get great information about whether something is worth taking or not, but not what to take. That's exactly right. So this is a good segue. Why don't you explain to our listeners how you test products? Sure. So first, it's important that we buy the products just like a consumer would buy them. So that's either off the shelf or online. Increasingly, companies cannot send us products. We do have a voluntary certification program, so any company can ask that we test their product and pay a fee. That's in addition to the products that we're buying on our own nickel and testing. Once we get the products in-house, they are sent to multiple laboratories, depending on what kind of product it is, which our head of research, who's a PhD in, in basically testing supplements and toxicology, he vets testing labs around the country. We send them to these labs to see, you know, what's really in the products. We're not doing clinical studies. We're not testing them on animals. We want to know what's in them. We want to know, does that fish oil have all the omega-3s? Is, is it not contaminated? Is it not rancid? You know, is the olive oil not rancid? Does it have it, what it's supposed to contain? Multivitamins, you know, we want to make sure that they and herbal products don't have contaminants like heavy metals. So we're doing lots of tests. And then um, if we find a problem, it's our protocol to send it to a second laboratory where we have to have confirmation before we would publish that information, which is why, you know, after 20 years, we've never been sued because we think we do a very good job because we are putting out the information about which products have failed and which have, have passed our tests. And then we also choose a top pick in every category based on it being approved in our testing and being a good value as well. And, and, you can definitely get good supplements at very low cost if you know where to look. You can get a good multivitamin, good fish oil, you know, pennies per day. You don't have to spend a lot of money to get a, a good supplement. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate that about your reports. And you're right. This is a way that Consumer Lab is set apart from other reviews, and that is that you do have what are the contaminants, and you tell us what they are and in what quantity they've been found. You also let us know what the cost per tablet is. So you, maybe you're looking for a particular nutrient. I've got the chocolate report open right now. And so you can tell us how many calories we're going to get from the chocolate, how many of these beneficial flavanols we're going to get, and how much we're going mm-hmm. to pay for them. So I think that you have some features that are truly unique. In addition to dietary supplements, and our listeners probably got a hint from this by some of the things you said, but chocolate olive oil. You recently reviewed chia seeds. So there are dietary products also that you review because food is medicine and there are particular compounds in those foods that we want to specifically get. So I appreciate the work that you've done. We should probably dive into one or more reports, depending on how much time we have, based on popular interest or popular demand We usually do this review once a year so we can look back over the last 12 months and see what's been at the top of everybody's mind. But since we were just recently eating chocolate, and because we eat chocolate, probably most of us, or at least maybe myself, several times a week, 
Let's dive into your report. You did a product review of dark chocolates, cocoa and cocoa powders, nibs, and supplements. And I had to scratch my head to think, who would take a supplement rather than eating chocolate? Um, (laughs) Right? Right. This is something that tastes so good. Why wouldn't we want to eat it? But the concern with cocoa are the contaminants and specifically cadmium. I did a little research to see, well, how does cadmium even get into the chocolate? And I've learned that it's actually in the soil in places where chocolate or cocoa naturally grows. What are the best forms to consume chocolate to reduce our risk from cadmium, but still get the beneficial flavanols? Right. So in testing the dark chocolates and cocos, we were looking for the amounts of flavanols, the amounts of cadmium. Those were the two main things we were looking at. And there are dramatic differences among products where many cocoa powders, if not the majority, actually have too much cadmium, say, for a kid to take daily. Some of them also exceed the level for an adult. And these are levels that are established in Canada and also in California. Unfortunately, the U.S., the FDA, has not set a limit you know, nationally. On the positive side, this year we did find some cocoa powders that were low enough in cadmium that it would be perfectly safe to take it daily, and they still had a decent amount of flavanols. Some of the dark chocolates, you see the biggest variations in, in the dark chocolates. Some are packed with flavanols, some are not. And some have, again, huge amounts of cadmium. You know, we've seen levels over 20 where you don't want to go over four. And that's for an adult, uh, but, right? Uh, for an adult, four, yeah. For a kid, about three. Is, is You don't want to exceed. What's interesting and what people should know about dark chocolates and cocoa is that, first of all, if you're going for the flavanols, which are what provide the health benefit, although I must say the health benefits, they're modest, modest short-term improvement in, in memory modest cardiovascular benefits. These aren't going to knock your socks off kind of benefits, but there are some modest benefits from these products. But you need to know, first of all, if you want those flavanols, don't buy a product that is dutched or alkali treated. That reduces the flavanol levels typically, you know, by at least half. We've seen, even with a very popular U.S. brand of, of say, cocoa, the Dutch chocolate version of the cocoa had one-tenth the flavanols of the the regular uh, cocoa powder. So if you want those flavanols, don't go Dutch. (laughs) The benefit of the Dutch is really more in flavor and the appearance. It's a very dark looking powder and it has a less bitter taste. Uh, It's a more mellow, nice chocolate taste. Regular cocoa has a slightly bitter taste to it, you know, which you sense when you eat a dark chocolate uh, that hasn't been Dutched. Mm -hmm. And this was such a lesson for me because I always was looking for the Dutch products or the alkalized products because I wanted that darker color. I felt like it, you know, <laughs> imparted a richer chocolate taste. And then when I realized, oh, wait, I was getting less of the beneficial antioxidants, these flavanol compounds, I had to rethink right. that. I am curious to know there are manufacturers out there, they know darn well that children eat these products. And I look at some of the cadmium levels, and I think to myself, they should be ashamed of themselves. Can cadmium be removed from these chocolate products? And are companies who have been found to have higher levels of cadmium trying to get rid of it? And how can they lessen the amount in those products? 
they can do a bit better, and I think they have, as I mentioned. You know, we saw better results this time around than last time, which was, I think, two years before. I don't think they can really remove it from the product completely, and I, I don't know chemically why that is, but we don't see it going away completely. They are definitely aware of the issue. It's an issue that's been around for many years. It's a bigger issue in Europe than it is here, where they've set limits. As I mentioned Canada also. So it kind of comes with the territory. When you eat a milk chocolate, which is what you know kids tend to eat more than dark chocolate, because of all the milk and sugar and other things that are in milk chocolate, you've actually diluted down the, the cadmium. So there's an upside, I guess, to milk chocolate for kids from that perspective, obviously a downside from all the sugar. The other thing to keep in mind is that you, even in a non-Dutch product, you can't assume how much flavanol is in there based on the percent cacao or percent cocoa. It gives you some indication, but the reason why you can't rely on that is that cacao percentage includes both cocoa butter, which has no flavanols, and the cocoa liqueur, which has the flavanols. And so if one product is made with more cocoa butter, it'll have more a higher percentage of, of cocoa or cacao, but it's not going to have more flavanols. We've seen products that are, say, 90% cacao having a lower concentration of flavanols than a 72% product. So just another interesting thing to know. Right. And, you know, I'm such a social justice advocate, and I am always looking at how well corporations behave in the global environment. And I know that children are often laborers when it comes to chocolate. So I am typically recommending that consumers find organic and fairly traded cocoa. We want to make sure that people are not supporting those brands that have child labor. And I know that that's not a part of your report specifically, but I have to say that just because a product is organic or just because it's fairly traded doesn't necessarily give you the benefit of having less cadmium or more flavanols. Right. It's true. And obviously, it's a very good point being aware of social justice, environmental impact, obviously, increasingly. And we are incorporating more and more of that kind of information. It's just a lot of different data points to put into one report. Right. But it doesn't guarantee you, unfortunately, that you'll get a better product or a safer product. And even the organic products that we test in general have higher levels of heavy metals than products that are not organic. And so it just because it's organic or fair trade doesn't mean it's, it's necessarily a better quality product. Right. At least not in the contaminant area. So, At least it's heavy metals. I mean, we typically don't look at pesticides in the products. If we did, I'm sure we'd see more pesticides in the products that are not organic. Right. So there is that trade-off to consider as well. Absolutely. You know, there's nothing is easy, Right. Let me take one break. We're halfway through already. And just remind our listeners that if you're just tuning in, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Dr. Todd Cooperman, who is president and founder of ConsumerLab.com, which is an independent evaluator of dietary supplements. I just want to recommend that our listeners go online and take a look at, I believe you've got a video on cocoa products that's very informative. And then if you want the larger report, it's 40 pages of in-depth reviews of all of these factors. I want to move on to vitamin D because it is something that is near and dear to my heart and to many of our listeners who have been recommended or advised by their doctor to take vitamin D, have your vitamin D measured, 
There are women, as we get older, we worry about bone health. Many of us have been diagnosed with either osteopenia or osteoporosis. We're told to take calcium, vitamin D, vitamin K. Let's dive into the benefits of a vitamin D supplement as well as some of the risks. Sure. So vitamin D is just like all other vitamins. It's essential. It's miraculous if you are not getting enough vitamin D and you you'll be much better off in so many different ways. Right. It affects the cardiovascular system, obviously bones, allergies, and asthma. The list kind of goes on. There are vitamin D receptors on all kinds of organ systems in your body. In terms of bone health, it doesn't help you to get more vitamin D if you already have enough vitamin D. When I say enough, I mean over 20 nanograms per ml, If you want, you could go, you know, 25 to 35 is probably a sweet spot. If you look at all the different things that vitamin D affects, but from all the reading that we do here, and we check every vitamin D study that's come out probably in the last at least 15 years and every day now, you really don't want to go above 39. And there are still doctors out there who either have misinformation or I don't know what's driving them, but they are recommending levels that are higher. And you get these vitamin D fanatics out there. If you look at the totality of the data, there is no benefit from going higher than, say, like 39. There's probably no benefit going even above 25 in many cases. And there is a downside to doing that. People die in studies. There are more deaths than people who are exceeding these levels going into the 40s and 50s. Some people mistake the units of measurement. I'm talking about nanograms per... ML. Nanograms right? Not nanomoles, which is a different unit where, so that would be a higher number with the nanomoles, but that's really where things are. And I think a lot of people are taking too much. You you know, you need about 600 to 800 IU per day. You can get it from the sun. You can get it from fortified foods, but people often are recommended to take a thousand, which is still safe. 2000, still safe. 4,000 is not safe. Big doses all at once, say once a week, or once a month, even bigger in both doses, are not a good idea. If I mean, if there's no way you can take it reliably daily, once a week is okay, but it's better to take it daily. It's the way your body would be getting vitamin D normally. So that's my little bit on vitamin D. And in terms of a supplement, it's very safe to take moderate amounts of vitamin D. I like to take it as a, a liquid drop. That way, anyone in my family can use it, depending on how much they need. It's very inexpensive, and it has no taste. So, you know, there's no swallowing issues or anything like that. I think that this is really important to understand. Your report on vitamin D is 70 pages. So, indeed, I think you told me you were reviewing over 300 studies that have come out. And, of course, this is totally up to date. We've got studies as recently as Journal of the American Geriatric Society 2019 looking at incontinence issues with vitamin D that low blood levels have been associated with a higher risk of overactive bladder. You've got a review of vitamin D and cognition. Let's talk about that because I think another thing that we're concerned about, certainly for those of us that are getting older, not only bones and preventing fractures, but dementia. And vitamin D has been investigated in its role for cognition. Tell me what you found there. Well, again, these aren't our findings, but if you maintain an adequate level of vitamin D, that's good for cognition. And just to kind of jump around a little, also critical for cognition, 
and slowing, preventing uh, Alzheimer's, dementia, you know, not completely, but, but in a helpful way, is having enough B vitamin, B vitamins, particularly B6, B12, folic acid, those are kind of the key B vitamins, and fish oil. You can get that from fish. That's probably the best way to get it. But if you don't eat fish, make sure you're getting enough fish oil, B vitamins, vitamin D. Those are really the three key vitamins, and fish oil is not a vitamin, but the types of nutrients that you want to be getting, and especially if you're older. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, just jumping back to bone health one second, vitamin D also will only help you if you're getting calcium when your diet or from a supplement. So studies have shown over and over, we just wrote about another one, showing no benefit from vitamin D in people who either already had enough vitamin D or didn't, but, but that weren't getting enough calcium. Hmm, interesting. Well, I know that many of the bone supplements come combined with calcium, vitamin D, and vitamin K. And I'm wondering with regard to absorptive sites, do we want to have something that is altogether, or do we want to be taking those supplemental nutrients individually? Right. So vitamins A, D, and E actually do inhibit the absorption of vitamin K. K is like the the weaker of the fat-soluble vitamins in terms of absorption. It kind of gets knocked out a bit by these other fat-soluble vitamins, A, D, and E. So it's really best not to take any of those with vitamin K. You could reduce vitamin K. This was only shown in a mouse study, so this is I don't have human data on this, but vitamin K absorption was reduced by 50% with any one of those uh, other fat-soluble vitamins. So you'll still be getting some vitamin K. The truth is most people are not deficient in vitamin K, and even the benefits of taking vitamin K, the studies have been equivocal in terms of really whether it helps or not. So if you have a bone supplement with vitamin D and K, just be aware you're probably getting a little less K than, than you think you're getting. If you really want to get a super large amount of vitamin K and, and make sure you're getting as much as you can out of it, take it about three hours after you take vitamin D or before. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. You've also got information in here about magnesium and boron as well as vitamin D and calcium these nutrients that together all help support a healthy skeletal system. Do you have anything that you want to add about some of these additional nutrients that often come along with vitamin D and calcium in bone supplements? Yeah, I mean, boron is added to a lot of some bone health supplements. Again, people are not really lacking boron. And I, I believe boron is not, is not even a, an essential mineral. Magnesium certainly is. Magnesium is helpful for lots of different things, and many people don't get enough magnesium. So I would actually, I would kind of add that to my list that I threw out before. It's good to get a little extra magnesium. You don't want to get too much from a supplement, but if you get, you know, 100, 200 extra milligrams of magnesium per day from a supplement, that's fine, and, and it might be helpful to you. And there are different forms of magnesium to take. There's magnesium citrate, there's a threonate, there's a... Help me out. Is there a gluconate also? I believe there is. There are many different forms. I like citrate forms, so I think that would be a good one to go with. When you're taking calcium, I like calcium citrate as well. And your reason for that? Well, they're, they're like for example, there's a form of magnesium which absorbs water. So if you actually have a magnesium pill made of this type of magnesium, it will get wet. It, it's really a crazy-looking thing. We've seen it here. 
products that we're testing, they get wet and then they wet all the, they ruin all the other pills around them. Citrate's well absorbed. It's and it's a preferred form. There are some other good forms, but that's a, a good one to go with. I see that there's a magnesium malate on your list. There's a magnesium oxide. Yeah, oxide is not as well absorbed. Okay, good to know. Yeah, actually, it's the chloride form that type that absorbs water. Okay. attracts water. So I, w- I would stay away from that unless you're taking it in a liquid form, in which case it's perfectly fine. Okay. Yeah, these are the kinds of confusing terms on supplement labels where people really don't know which one is better than another. I saw a report looking at a food source of boron, which prunes apparently are high in boron. And I believe this was an animal study as well. But they found that there was better bone health in those animals that had received, I want to say maybe the equivalent of seven or eight prunes a day. And again, one study animal study? Can we apply it to human populations? Not necessarily, but it's just another study to take into consideration, which is what you do with these reports. You compile them all. You look to see what are the facts that seem to be bubbling up to the top and run with those. So I think that's really beneficial for your listeners. You know, we just have a few minutes left, and I did want to talk about Alzheimer's and fish oil. You touched on fish oil for a moment, Let's just give our listeners a review of that. We know that, again, people are concerned about Alzheimer's, they're concerned about dementia. You found that, by looking at the research, that fish oil can help people with Alzheimer's disease, but one new study suggested it's only when they're getting enough of B vitamins. Tell me more about that. That's really it. In that study, the benefit was only seen in people who had sufficient levels of B vitamin, and that was based on their homocysteine levels. B vitamins keep homocysteine down, so people who had higher homocysteine levels didn't get the benefit from the fish oil. So again, for memory, make sure you're getting B vitamins, fish oil, and B vitamins are safe up to a point. You don't want to take you know more than what's required. Again, that's B6, B12, folic acid. Folic acid is one where you can get too much. B12, there is not an upper limit. However, if you take away too much B12, uh, some people develop some acne or rosacea. They can have other downsides, but you only need very little B12 per day. You can only absorb a small amount with a meal. So it's better if you really want to get your B12 up, take a little bit, but take it twice a day at two different meal times. And even people, older people who have low acidity and have trouble extracting B12 from their food, the B12 supplements, there's nothing to extract. It's already there. You don't have to worry about that. So again, B12 is kind of a star for older people. Okay. This is all good to know. We have one minute left. Do you want to leave our listeners with a charge or a little last piece of advice? Just seek information. Be skeptical. Know that you don't have to pay a fortune. Try to get as much as you can from your food. You know, even probiotics, another area that we test, if you really look at the data, you know, people who eat well, eat food that feeds the bacteria, the good bacteria that are already in their gut, that's even better than taking a probiotic. Cause that, those probiotic organisms don't last in your stomach. They don't really repopulate your gut like people have said for years. They're there and then they're gone. But if you eat well, you'll be uh, maintaining a really nice population, say a Mediterranean diet. That will give you the benefits beyond probably what you'll get from a probiotic. All right. Well, we'll have to close with that. 
I can't recommend www.consumerlab.com enough in terms of extensive research. It's really a great consumer-friendly tool for finding the best supplements for the best price. Does the product contain what it really says, and are there contaminants? So good resource. Thank you for your research on this, Dr. Cooperman. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank my producer, Dan Hemmelgarn, and the recording studios at KOPN in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank the work of Dr. Todd Cooperman, president and founder and editor-in-chief at ConsumerLab.com. Thanks for our annual update. My pleasure, Melinda. 